Please be seated. Our scripture reading for this morning, our sermon text for this morning, comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. If you'll turn with me now in your Bibles, uh, we'll read Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 18. And uh, before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we draw near with confidence. We draw near with confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Uh, we draw near with confidence because of the work of our great high priest. We draw near with confidence not in ourselves or in anything that we have done, but we draw near with confidence because of our Savior, because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as we draw near this morning, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts and minds to the truths of your word, that you would soften our hearts, that we would receive your word, that you would transform our hearts by your word. And we pray, Father, that you would do all these things by the work of your spirit, using your word in our hearts. Father, allow me to speak what is true and good and right and allow us to hear what is true and good and right to the praise and honor of our Savior Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Well, I have a talent for making simple things complicated. Just ask my wife, right? We, we never do things the easy way. And, uh, th you know, this is one of those things where your greatest strengths are also your greatest weaknesses. Uh, I, I, I think a lot about stuff. I consider that a strength, at least. I, I like to get into the nuance of things. But what that means is no decision is an easy decision, and everything always ends up harder than it needs to be. This is kind of the self-inflicted story of my life. Well, this morning, I want to give you something, hopefully not overly complicated, but simple. Now, hopefully not unnuanced, but simple nonetheless. A simple picture of discipleship from the book of Hebrews. See, the, the path of discipleship is, is relatively simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Believe belong, become. 
You know, the central thought of the book of Hebrews is about drawing near to the presence of God, which is no small thought. Of course, this idea of drawing near assumes a couple of things. First, it assumes that there is a, a way to draw near. By drawing near, I, I don't mean physical proximity. Uh, people can share the same physical space but be emotionally or relationally distant. By drawing near, I mean, I mean relationally. And the, and the means by which we draw near are what we call the means of grace. Things like prayer and scripture, but also self-consciously living in the presence of God. Second, the idea of drawing near assumes that it is desirable to draw near. I won't argue that now except to say that the Old Testament teaches that there are pleasures at God's right hand forevermore and that true joy is found in communion with the living God. And yet as we have seen in the past, humanity because of sin was cast out of God's presence. And the result is this continual tension in the Old Testament between drawing near to God and being held at arm's length. The question is asked in one way or another repeatedly in the Old Testament, who can draw near? Who can dwell with God? Or to put it differently, what must we do to gain access to God's throne of grace? And the answer, the simple answer is believe, belong, and become. First, believe. Believe it is finished. You know, we tend to get our sense of self-worth from what we do. If I succeed, if I achieve, if I accomplish, whether in the academic realm or the artistic, the relational or the religious, in society or in my home, if I do well, I feel good about myself. And if I do poorly, I feel sad and disappointed and depressed. This means that if I am strong or beautiful or smart or funny or disciplined or dynamic, if I have something to cling to, I can feel good about myself. If not, then, well, not so much. This often bleeds over into Christianity, sometimes subtly, sometimes not. In fact, sometimes Christianity is pictured as good moral people getting together with other good moral people to celebrate how good and moral they really are. Kind of a look at us, aren't we great club. And different churches might emphasize different things, right? For some, it's, it's doctrine, right? Look at us, we have the best doctrine, aren't we great? For others, it's piety. Uh, look at us, we, we read our Bibles, we pray regularly, we go to church, aren't we great? For still others, it's ministry, right? Look at us, we care for the poor, we evangelize the lost, we engage our neighbors, aren't we great? And it's a, a subtle, uh, but also a damning temptation. I say subtle because, of course, all of those things are important. And damning because if we really get our sense of self-worth from those things, we are Christians but who stand condemned. You see, our, our doctrine, our piety, our ministry cannot take away our sin. And so where does your sense of self-worth come from? Now, now, the biblical term for self-worth, as, as we're talking about it at least, is your righteousness. Where does your righteousness come from? 
Jesus told a parable about this in Luke 18. Uh, Luke says, uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This man got his sense of self-worth, his righteousness, from himself. He was self-righteous, we say. Scripture, on the other hand, says by our works, no one is righteous. Actually, we are sinful. Now, I realize that that word sinful uh, doesn't always communicate in our culture. When people hear it, they often think of a list of things that church says are bad, right? We, we vilify others while we congratulate ourselves, leaving the impression that we are righteous while the word outside, world outside of our doors is sinful. And any concept of sin, of course, that allows us to do that is not a biblical concept of sin. According to Scripture, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is accepted. Sin is not just a list of, of do's and don'ts. It includes any time we do what we know is wrong or any time we don't do what we know is right, but also any time we look to the creation to be for us what only God can be, which is what Scripture calls idolatry. Or another image that Scripture uses is, is that of adultery, right? Adultery, of course, is when you look to someone who is not your spouse to be for you what only your spouse should be, you, you understand. But in this sense, sin is profoundly relational. It is breaking a relationship with the Creator, not living in and not living out of the communion with God which was intended from the beginning. Sin is spiritual adultery, betrayal, unfaithfulness to the one who made us, and all have sinned. And of course, no good works, no good deeds can take that away. No matter what I do, I can't undo what I have done. And that's even true of the Old Testament sacrifices. Not even they can take away our sin. In the Old Testament, God had provided a sacrificial system which maintained ceremonial communion with God, but in itself, it did not actually take away sin. That's what our writer says in verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They can never take away sins because it's the blood of bulls and goats. What has the blood of bulls and goats to do with human sin? And yet, of course, they weren't intended to take away sin. As I said, the, 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 they maintained a ceremonial access to God, and they pointed forward to a better sacrifice, one which would truly remove sin. And their impotency, right, the impotency of these Old Testament rituals is highlighted by the priest's position and the sacrifice's repetition. Verse 11 says that the priest stands daily at his sacrifice. The implication is he is always working. He can't sit. He can't rest. His work is never done. He must offer repeatedly the same sacrifices that do not cleanse from sin. In fact, they are simply a reminder of sin, according to chapter 10, verse 3. 
a reminder that cleansing is necessary. But then we get to verse 12. Verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The writer says, Compare those Old Testament priests and sacrifices to the sacrifice of Christ and the present position of Christ. He offered one sacrifice himself, and then he sat down. Now, this sitting down seems really important to our author because he mentions Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father no less than five times, starting in chapter 1, verse 3. Now, there are, are two ways that we know that Jesus did this. The first is Jesus himself said that was what he was going to do. In uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 69, he says, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Second, though, the Psalms, the Old Testament book of Psalms, predicted it. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is, the Lord God said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus, after he rose from the dead, taught his disciples for 40 days about the kingdom. And we get a glimpse of that teaching in Luke 24, where Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it seems pretty likely that he explained that by particular verses, going to different passages of scripture, showing them what, what he was going to do, what was prophesied of him in the Old Testament. And it seems likely that he went to Psalm 110 because it is quoted so often in the writings of his followers. Again, Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus sat down because his priestly sacrificial work was finished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That is, on God's throne to rule and to reign, to subdue his enemies. For the moment, by making them his friends through the gospel. What better way to defeat your enemies than to befriend them? It's typical Jesus, right? Always overturning our expectations. But the point to be emphasized here is Jesus has finished his work. In fact, he said as much on the cross. The, 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 the cross is where he was offered up as a sacrifice for sins. And just before he died, it, it seems the moment before the, the text says he gave up his spirit, he cried out, it is finished. And friends, here's one of the, the most important things for us to believe in the whole of the Christian life, that Jesus has completed the work the Father gave him to do. It is finished. And because it is finished, the sins of those who believe in him are forgiven. Through faith in him, we, we are no longer rebellious and sinful in God's sight, but righteous and holy as we are about to see. This is not because of our success, not because of our achievements, whether religious or moral or academic, but because Jesus has taken away our sin. And the only thing that we need to see now is that his priestly work is the key. He has done what the Old Testament priests could not do. Their sacrifices of bulls and goats could not take away sin. But Jesus, God in the flesh, came as a man, came as a, a human being, to die for human beings. 
And his human nature makes him a substitute, a fit substitute for human beings. But his infinite divine nature makes him a sufficient substitute for all human beings. His perfect righteousness, of course, makes him the only one who need not suffer for his own sin. And so he was able to suffer for sinners like you and I. He stood in our place that he might now sit at the Father's right hand on our behalf. And so believe, believe that his work is finished. Christ has done what is necessary for you to draw near, to belong. You are holy. Now, if we don't get our sense of self-worth from what we do, we tend to look at what others think. How often have you walked into a room and, and worried about what others think of you? What, what do they think about the way I look? What do they think about the way I dress? What do they think about the things that I say? Now, worrying about what we do and worrying about what others think are, are related, of course, but they're not quite the same thing. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I, I didn't seem to fit in anywhere. I didn't belong. I wasn't a jock. I, I wasn't a preppy kid. I, I didn't play in the high school band. I, I couldn't skate, which in the late 80s, you know, that's what you did, right? You, you skated. I didn't skate. I, I didn't get good grades. I didn't have the physique to be a bully. Uh, I, I wanted to fit in somewhere, but I just didn't fit in anywhere. I didn't belong. I want to take a few minutes to look at this word in verse 14, sanctified, because it's this word that gets at the fact that we belong. We saw that word back in verse 10. We see it again in verse 14. In verse 10, uh, we read, And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And then verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, verse 10 makes it sound like uh, this is something that has happened. We have been sanctified. Uh, verse 14, though, makes it sound like something that, that is happening, those who are being sanctified. But I, both actually refer to an event in the believer's life that happens once for all in a moment. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, uh, we are told that people were being added to the church day by day. But that adding was a moment with respect to the individual, but ongoing with respect to the process by which individuals were added, right? So here, and as an individual, as verse 10 says, an individual is sanctified in a moment, but people are being sanctified every day. First one, and then another, and then a third, and, and, and so on. But what, is it, what does this word here mean, this word sanctified? It's, it's a very religious word, right, sanctified. It's not one that we use every day. Uh, if I said a synonym was consecrated or consecrate, that probably wouldn't help you much. Uh, another synonym is dedicated, which is maybe a bit more helpful. Uh, we, know that, that it, we know what it means to, to dedicate a ship or a building or even uh, to dedicate our lives to a cause. And that at least begins to get at what sanctified means here. Through the offering of Jesus, verse 10, we are sanctified, fully dedicated to God. But even that doesn't go far enough because anybody can dedicate anything to any purpose. But here it is God who is doing the dedicating, God who is sanctifying us, God who is declaring us holy. 
what is holy is uniquely dedicated, set apart for God's purposes. Now, I, I should point out that this is not the way we normally use the word sanctify in theology, right? In, in theology, you have justification, which deals with our status. We are unrighteous in our sin, condemned, but we are declared righteous in Jesus, justified. Justification deals with our status before God. And then in theology, you have sanctification, which deals with our condition. Uh, definitive sanctification is, is this decisive break with sin's power over us. And progressive sanctification is our growth in internal holiness. We are changed at our core. We are made more like Jesus. And you'll notice the word justification, though, never appears in the book of Hebrews. And yet what the writer is talking about continually is our status before God, our right to draw near. And he uses the word sanctify to make holy, not to refer to our internal condition as it is sometimes used in scripture, but to refer to our interpersonal status. We are holy to God. And here again is that the only thing that I want you to see at the moment, because we are holy, because God has declared us to be holy, has set us apart as holy, we can draw near to God. If you wanted to draw near in your sin, not going to happen, right? Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden on account of their sin, out of God's presence. They were sinful. They were unclean. They could not dwell in God's presence. But Jesus has dealt with sin. He has cleansed us by his blood, purified us of our sin, and sanctified us to the Father so that we are now holy. And what does this mean? What, 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 is, what is your first response when, you're, when you sin? For many, uh, their first response when they sin is to run from God. Now, I've sinned. God hates sin. I better run. God, God is looked at uh, as, as a kind of cosmic law enforcer in the sky. And if I break the law, I run from the law. I run from the law enforcer. God is seen as cold or uncaring or sterile or rigid. But in Christ and by faith in Christ, our sins are removed. Our uncleanness is taken away, and we are declared holy in God's sight. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And what that means is when you sin, you do not need to run from God, but you can run to Him. You are His holy child. You belong to Him, right? You, you belong. You belong to God. He is yours and you are his. He is your God and you are his people. This is the great covenant promise, the promise of relationship, the promise of belonging, the promise of holiness, of being holy to God. You see, holiness is, is when, you know, in, in everyday life, holiness is when two people say, I do. When they, when they marry one another, they are now dedicated wholly to one another. And they, they may struggle to live out that holiness, but their rings remind them that they are each holy to the other. Well, we are holy to God. If you belong to Christ, you are holy to God. Don't run from Him. Run to Him. Know that if you don't, if you don't feel like you belong anywhere else on the planet, you belong with Him. 
He has called you his own. He has sanctified you by the blood of Jesus. He has made you holy and so draw near. Since we have such a great high priest who has sanctified us by the offering of his blood, draw near to God. Draw near with confidence. Because in Christ, before the Father, you are holy. And so believe. Believe that it is finished. Christ has done what is necessary for you to draw near. To belong, right? You are holy. You have gained a new status in Christ. Holy to the Lord. Which gives you the right to access the Father's throne of grace. Three, become. You will be perfect. Now, I, uh, I am a perfectionist. And when I get depressed, more often than not, it is because I have failed to live up to my own standards. Right? That tends to be what it means to be a perfectionist. Right? I, I haven't been perfect I know nobody's perfect, right? So you don't have to email me and tell me nobody's perfect. I know, but, but I have this desire, right, to attain a certain standard. And when I don't, I get depressed. But because of that underlying tendency toward perfectionism, this word perfect in verse 14 actually bothered me. Uh, verse 14 says, uh, for, a, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, I'm, I'm one of those who has been sanctified in Christ, but I, but I sure don't feel perfect. And so I spent a lot of time this week thinking about this word, perfect. And of course, right, in Scripture, the word perfect does not have the same connotations as it does for us. In fact, various words for perfect are also translated mature. And an adjectival form of this word is found in Hebrews 5.11, which says solid food is for the mature. A noun form is found in Hebrews 6, 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And so perfection in Scripture is not so much an end point, but the process of growing, maturing, and bearing fruit. And there is an end point, of course, right? To become mature, to become perfect, is to be well-suited for the end for which you exist. Uh, the maturity for a plant or for a business or for a person will look different because they exist for different purposes. Jesus, even Jesus, had to be made perfect, according to Hebrews, which shows that this is not limited to, to moral improvement, right? Jesus had to grow up from a boy to a man. He had to learn true obedience as a man. He had to suffer in our place. In these ways, Hebrews said, Jesus was made perfect, which is to say, as God in heaven... Of course, Jesus was perfect. He was morally upright. He was perfect in power, perfect in holiness, but he could not bear our sin. He could not perform the work of our Savior. To do that, he had to become a man, to live as a man, to die as a man. And through that work, he brought to fruition the work of our salvation. And so for us, it is not about, right, did I, did I word that last sentence correctly? It is about, am I fit for communion with my Father? That, of course, is the end for which I was created, right? Communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And our writer is concerned about our being made perfect because he's concerned about our communion with God. And so he says things like perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood, Hebrews 7.11. The law made nothing perfect, Hebrews 7.19. The Old Testament sacrifices could not perfect the conscience, Hebrews 9.9. But most tellingly, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, the law and its sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. We have been set apart for communion with God, made holy, but we must, but we, but now we must be made fit for communion with God. We must be made perfect. This is exactly what God promises in the covenant. Look at verses 15 and 15 through 17. The writer uh, confirms what he's been saying by saying this, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What, what is perfection in the book of Hebrews? What, what does it mean to come to maturity, to come into our own as human beings? It is to have our sins removed and the law placed in our hearts. It is to be free from both the guilt and the power of sin. And this is what it means to be perfect here, to be perfectly suited for communion with our God. And this is the promise of the new covenant, of God's unbreakable oath to his people that he would free them from sin's guilt and power, that he would perfect them for communion with himself. Now, of course, there is a progressive aspect to this. Uh, listen to the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He says, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature perfect, think this way. See, there, there is growth in this perfection, as there is growth in holiness. I said before uh, about a married couple, right, that they are now holy to one another, but they must learn to live in that holiness and to live it out in the way they live their lives. Well, when we first come to Christ, the law is put on our hearts, but we must learn to work that out in our lives. As Paul says, he presses on and strains forward. But earlier in that same book, in the book of Philippians, he said in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ's work is finished. If you believe in him and have been baptized into Christ, you are holy. You have been set apart by the Father that, you sh that, that he should be your God and that you should be among his people. And you have been made perfect, brought to a, a level of maturity. The law has been written on your heart. Your sins have been forgiven, which means we can now rest in the completed work of Jesus and strive to be holy and to grow up in our maturity. And Paul says that's exactly what the ministry of the church is for. He, he, he says uh, in Ephesians 4, for the, the ministry of the church is there for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he goes on and he says, we speak the truth in love so that we will grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 
so the call of the Christian life is, is always, you are holy, so be holy. Christ has done everything necessary for your maturity, your perfection, so strive to grow up into that. As the writer of Hebrews will say, run the race set before you. Part of that means we have been dedicated to God, so dedicate yourself anew every day to the work of God in you and through you. You have been placed in the body of Christ, so speak the truth in love so that we, we will all grow up to maturity. The law has been written on your hearts, so strive to keep God's law. And when you fall, don't run from God, but run to Him. Repent of your sin, seek His forgiveness and the help of His Spirit. And rest in the thought that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the last day. And so point one, believe it is finished. Christ has done what is necessary for you to draw near. Point two, belong. You are holy. You have gained a new status in Christ, holy to the Lord, which gives you the right to access God's throne of grace. Point three, become. You will be perfect. Not only do you have a right to draw near, God is making you fit for His presence even now. He will complete His work in His timing. Let that stir you on to run the race set before us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for, for the work of Jesus. We thank You that it is finished, that He has completed His high priestly sacrificial work. That, that, that means we are holy in Your sight. With all of our sin, all of our weakness, all of our brokenness, we are holy to You. We belong to You. We are Yours and You are our God. Father, help us to marvel at that and rejoice in that and rest in that completed work of Jesus in making us holy to the Lord. Yet help us also to know that, that, that we have been perfected in some way. We have been matured. We, the law has been written on our hearts. And yet we strive to grow up into that and to live that out more fully. And we, we rest, Father, in the fact that that is your work and you will complete it. So help us to run the race resting in you by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.